Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. That's Gerhard Steuben. And that's Tyler Stanley. Today we're going to talk about Gnosticism and what it was, what it wasn't, and what it may ever be. First off, we want to say uh, thank you for your patience. Uh, we know it's been a while since we've put out an episode. Uh, Gerhard and I have had a lot going on in our lives lately. Uh, first thing we've got is that Gerhard just published a new book. So Gerhard, tell us about that book. Uh, so the book is with Patristica Press, um, which is not named after this podcast. Um, but Tyler and I are two of the co-owners of Patristica Press, so it's related, I guess. Um, the book is called Scripture Revisited, and the subtitle is A Theology of the New Testament in Christian Tradition. Um, I don't think any of the contemporary options as far as thinking about how um, scripture is authoritative and why scripture matters for our lives work really well. Um, I don't think things like inerrancy, infallibility, um, it being inspiring are sustainable ways to think about scripture. And so in this book, I tried to develop a new method and it ended up being um, because of what I ended up saying about how the New Testament is authoritative, I was forced to conclude that early church tradition is also in some sense authoritative. But with that really polemical little aside, I'm going to have to leave you. But if you want more information, um, I'll be doing an interview um, on, well, it will have already happened by the time this podcast comes out. You can look at that on the Patristica Press Facebook page. Um, or you can just buy it on Wednesday, or pre-order it before Wednesday. Wednesday of... Oh yeah, October 25th. And not only have things been happening in my life, but things have also been happening in Tyler's life, and not just because he also works at Patristica. Tyler, you had a really sweet conference, didn't you? I did. So another one of the reasons we postponed doing this episode um, is I spent this past summer doing a lot of reading and research on Gnosticism and Christianity in Egypt, where Gnosticism was uh, a big part of the culture. I also went to a conference on Gnosticism and the Nag Hammadi Library, which is the an ancient library of texts that were found in 1945, um, where we get a lot of our information about what we call Gnosticism. Um, and at that conference, I got to Here are papers presented from uh, Elaine Pagels and David Brackey and uh, other Gnostic scholars and Coptic scholars. So I wanted to go to that and get some more details on Gnosticism and the literature before we did this episode. Um, I even got to have dinner with Bart Ehrman, which was pretty fantastic. He's a super nice guy. So nice. It was fun. Was he fun? Or was he just nice? He was fun and nice. Nice. Thanks for being fun fun and nice and fun, Bart. All right. What are we drinking today, Gerhard? Uh, So, Tyler, can you actually describe the drink for a second? Yeah. My mom actually gave me this recipe. It is just unsweetened, normal black tea, iced, and then you put in some peach-flavored vodka from the brand 360 and it's fantastic it is fantastic i've been drinking it uh as we've been getting ready for the podcast and i'm drinking it right now and the reason it's so 
grade of a pairing with Gnosticism is because the tea is really just the shell of um, the drink. The real heart of the drink is the vodka that you put inside, the spirit, if you will, inside the flesh of the tea. And if you drink enough of it, you can become so intoxicated with the divine that you just stare contemplatively at the wall. Mm. Yeah. And the goal is to escape the tea and to get to the vodka. Right. That's what really matters. And you got to escape your life, too, by drinking the tea and vodka. Yeah. Yeah. Escape this flesh. Mm. Poison the flesh. Praise God. Praise be. All right. So, Gnosticism. So, the word Gnostic uh, or Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word Gnosis. That's G-N-O-S-I-S in transliterated English letters, it means knowledge. And so the whole concept traditionally of Gnosticism is that salvation comes by receiving divine knowledge, secret, hidden knowledge. And in order to receive that knowledge, it has to be preached to you, taught to you from people who have themselves received this knowledge. Um, And so that's who this tradition sees Jesus as being the the one who has received the divine knowledge and delivers that divine knowledge to his disciples and his disciples give it to us to pass on. So there are a lot of different texts that are associated with Gnosticism. Some of the more famous ones are the Gospel of Thomas, which is a collection of sayings of Jesus. Um, And that book really portrays Jesus as a wisdom teacher. Another is the Gospel of Judas. There is the Gospel of Truth. And there are different uh, different sects within what we call Gnosticism. So there are those who follow Valentinus, which are the Valentinians. There are the Sethians. There are Manichaeans and Mandeans and all of these different Ians within this tradition and this is a really for me it is a really intimidating field of study because there is so much to it and it's so incredibly complicated itself uh the the literature is complicated it's hard to know whether these texts fit into which tradition um and then the scholarship around it contemporary scholars debate over who the Gnostics were and what they thought and where they were located. Um, it's all kind of a mess. So uh, It's this, so convoluted. It is, yeah. So this episode isn't going to get so much into the nitty-gritty of each individual sect, um, partly because that's something that I'm still working on figuring out. We're going to look at more of the problem of Gnosticism, kind of where scholarship is on who they were, um, whether they existed, and the general trends in the thought processes of the literature that we have. Um, Because there are things that hold these different groups, if we want to call them groups, if they ever were groups, there there are things that hold their literature together, um, general thoughts. So, and then we'll kind of look at Uh, contemporary issues, why this matters for you, why you should care about Gnosticism, and why the early church cared to combat this thing called Gnosticism.
other than that Thomas and Judas wrote a gospel. That's kind of cool. Or did they? Or did they? There's also the gospel of Peter. Oh, that's yeah. exciting. So, uh, which was a common theme. That's that's actually a really important aspect of Gnostic literature is that they claimed that their traditions went back to the apostles. They had a lot of apocalyptic literature, which is what really draws me uh, into it. But they attributed a lot of their writings. They were, you know, pseudonymous writings, which means uh, using a fake name to write it. So there's the Gospel of Judas, Thomas, Peter. I think there's, there, there is one of John. So they wanted to show that their Gospels went back to the Apostles, which goes back into the general theory of Gerhard's view of Scripture. Which is that Scripture is... And my view of Scripture, yeah, I should say. Both of our views of Scripture. Uh, yeah, we've had lots of long conversations about this and learned a lot from each other um, on this issue, but we both think that the reason that the New Testament is authoritative is because the apostles, like Paul and Peter and James, taught it. Um, and the Gnostics did too, as did all of pretty much the early church up until and beyond Origen, though Origen changes a little bit. And if anyone didn't catch the joke earlier, we do want to be clear, uh, Thomas and Judas and whatnot didn't actually write those books. Yeah. People have been confused by that. So if you were, do not feel bad. And part of the reason they've been confused is that, I mean, people like Bart Ehrman, who as nice of a guy he is, as he is, uh, you know, claims that the Gospel of Thomas is more uh, original to the movement of Christianity than the Gospels that we have today. Uh, he claims that it's older, more reliable picture of what Christians believed. I think Pagels, Elaine Pagels also sees the Gnostic movement as being more um, original to Christianity. So, um, and they're, and they are extremely respectable and respected voices in the field of early Christianity. So their arguments, just because they don't happen to say the traditional things we like, they should be uh, respected and interacted with. So, yeah, <laughs> they're fine arguments. I don't think they're true. Yeah. Um, just because it's not what we think doesn't mean it's a bad argument. Okay, uh, so Gerhard, give us a little rundown of traditional ideas of what Gnosticism is. Uh, the most traditional thing about Gnosticism is that it's really weird. Um, first of all, they are really confusing and misled when they come to thinking about God. Um, they don't think in terms of one all-knowing, all-everything God. They have instead this conception of like this ultimate being that every other aspect of God just bubbles off of. And so there's this one super God, but then these other billion gods. And so they are really convoluted in the way they think about how the divine works. But they're also equally convoluted and misled when it comes to how humans exist, how the world exists, and how salvation works. Um, part of the Gnostic system that Tyler will explain more um, a bit later, and will deconstruct the notion of a Gnostic system, um, <clears throat> but part of that system is that the uh, world is basically bad. 
material world is basically bad um, and that the creator of the world is either stupid or bad and that that means that this world is either senseless or evil and so that the point of salvation is to escape this world inside each of you and each of us there is a spark of the divine and by learning some esoteric mystical truths about the universe we can be saved from this uh, awful base existence and like a bird from these prison bars will fly away um, that's sort of how Gnostics conceived of God and salvation and humanity and the world and basically all of it is awful that's yeah. the traditional view and it's confusing hella confusing it's very confusing uh, what about the traditionally speaking again the origins of Gnosticism where did this all begin it all began with a guy named Simon Simon Magus uh, who you may know from somewhere in like Acts 7 or 8 or 9, that area. Um, Simon, his last name wasn't Magus, that was his career. His career was as magician. Um, and so Simon the magician was converted to Christianity, and then it came out that his conversion to Christianity was inauthentic, and the apostle Peter rebuked him and said the, you know, awful not awful as in morally awful, but like really brutal. May your money perish with you. You thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And so Simon Magus is this awful, inauthentic person. And then he doesn't repent in Acts. And so the early church uh, tradition is that Simon went out and taught disciples things he knew were awful and not true. And it was these Gnostic teachings about the bubbly divine and the hidden gnosis and that simon magus taught a disciple who taught a disciple who taught a disciple who taught people like valentinus and basilides and other early gnostic leaders and so ultimately all this murky confusing gnostic, gnostic madness goes back to simon magus the original heretic what a jerk what a jerk didn't he know yes he did know and that's what made him awful and what made him ascend into the heavenly realm was right. that he knew. That's right. He could knock at every eon's door and give the password and solve the puzzle and jump through the right portal at the right time. That's actually some teachings from Gnostic texts, is that you have passwords to get through the eons to ascend to the ultimate divinity. And for your edification, because Tyler is so well-read in Gnosticism, uh, Tyler, can you give us some of those passwords? Uh, the first one is password one, <laughs> capital P. How about? Oh, yeah, that actually, that actually is a <laughs> Tyler thing. told me about this recently. It's no, great. that's not a password. It was. It uh, wasn't. Oh, bummer. No, it was the creation of <laughs> one of the the creation of one of the eons. Uh, so this is an actual text. <laughs> I love this so much. Uh, this is a passage from a, a Gnostic text. Uh, the father of the great light who came forth from the silence. He is the great Doxomedon Eon, in which the thrice male child rests. <laughs> and the throne of his glory was established in it. This one on which his unrevealable name is inscribed on the tablet. There's... A gap in the text there 
One is the word, the father of light, of everything, he who came forth from the silence. While he rests in the silence, he whose name is an, an invisible symbol, a hidden invisible mystery came forth. And this is actually written in the text. E <laughs> like we're looking at it right now it's a bunch of capital letters just in a string yeah is it is it all vowels yeah it's all vowels it's supposed to be the sound of this mystery coming forth from the mouth of this eon that's the you just heard the creation of a god the hindus say it's om the gnostics oh, say yeah. it's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful it's a One beautiful song hindus I wonder if that was actually like part of a ritual service and if just, it was yeah. actually sung like Om in the, you said it's Hindu tradition. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Fun stuff. I really want to go to like a theatrical reading of a Gnostic text and see what that was like. That sounds amazing. Sounds like Nicolas Cage on acid. Oh my God. So I mean, he just... would do it. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter how much we pay him. He would do it. <laughs> So last night at like 10 o'clock, I started watching The Matrix to try to understand Gnosticism a little better. Actually, it's surprisingly helpful to watch through and think about uh, how, think about a good parallel to Gnosticism. So you, you know, you've got this whole idea that robots have taken over the world. That's not so Gnostic. But the main character neo he receives salvation by receiving knowledge from these other people who have received the true knowledge um it's kind of parallel to something like the gospel of truth um which is uh supposedly a valentinian text where it's like the saved saviors you know like this one comes and gives them the knowledge that they need to escape the fake world and to get into reality, the true world of who they're supposed to be. And then they go and in turn sort of evangelize and wake other people up to the truth. It's a lot like uh, what you see in uh, The Matrix. I mean, you even have these prophecies and you have this... Uh, there's a scene where Morpheus talks about the... Like one of the first people to wake up and he could do anything he wanted to in the real world or in the in the fake world because he understood the truth um, and he could fight the agents um, of this computer program and he could defeat them and there's a prophecy that one is coming who could do the same thing and it ends up you know being spoiler alert if you haven't watched this since it came out in like early 90s then that's your own dang fault so Neo ends up being the one who, who like receives the full knowledge and fulfills the prophecies and fights these uh, evil agents, and he does so because he has received this knowledge, which actually gets us into um, another really important aspect of the monastic movement, especially in Egypt, of how they. They read this Gnostic literature. Um, they would have read all about the, you know, cosmic levels of being. And they would have read about how the evil spirits were created. 
Um, and they actually, a central part of being a monk was fighting demons. Like the story of St. Anthony, he was, he's known as the father of um, monasticism. And he, there are stories of him being physically attacked by demons. There are stories of them beating him so badly that they thought he was dead, but then he ends up uh, waking up when people thought he was dead. There's actually one, one of my favorites is demons attacked him by coming to him in the form of horses and filling his entire house with horses. I don't know <laughs> what kind of battle tactic that is, but I like it. And Tyler likes the painting based on it a lot, too. Yeah, there are some good paintings based on the... Salvador Dali's is one of the most famous ones. That's what uh, I was thinking of. Yeah. Uh, actually, Da Vinci's first painting was a copy of... Um, not Salvador Dali, but uh, <laughs> there was a, a wood woodcut art oh. piece of uh, the Temptation of Antony and... Uh, Da Vinci, I'm pretty sure it's Da Vinci, did a copy of that. Nice. That's really cool. It's either Da Vinci or Michelangelo. I'm pretty sure it's Da Vinci. One of the uh, turtle guys. Yes. Yeah. Turtle guy. Uh, so just like Neo followed the white rabbit, so Seth followed the uh, <laughs> wise serpent and yeah. Yeah. was saved. But it's interesting, like, Evagrius, the monk, um, who really kicked off the originist controversies, um... Actually, I spent time this summer working with Jeff Smith. He's a Coptic and Gnostic scholar. He's, he says if anyone was Gnostic, it was Evagrius. Um, and Evagrius actually lists off demons and talks about like how you fight these demons and like ranks them in levels of being. And so, I mean, Gnosticism, the tendencies of Gnosticism... Um, with its hierarchy of being, um, its kind of view of evil spirits and stuff like that, malevolent spirits, the monks. It, I mean, it was a really central part of monastic life. Uh, Evagrius is fun, uh, not only because, I mean, everything that Tyler just said, but his uh, the reception of Evagrius is also really fun. Uh, the Syriac reception of Evagrius cuts out a lot of his, like, super crazy uh gnostic tendency stuff hmm. and so like in greek evagrius is much more gnostic feeling than he is in syriac uh like the language syriac which is a later form of the aramaic jesus spoke the christians who spoke syriac are like ah we're gonna get rid of the, a lot of this gnostic stuff but we're gonna still like use evagrius because he's got really cool insight on how to meditate well yeah like he and I mean, I hesitate to say even today, but like if you're trying to learn to meditate, reading Evagrius can be really helpful, even if you don't believe it's like supernatural, spiritual stuff. He has really good practical tips, even though he calls those things demons. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is tangential, but related. Um, you know, you talk about uh, them playing down those more wild tendencies of Evagrius. Uh, that's exactly what Athanasius did when he wrote The Life of Antony. Like, we have letters from Antony, and when you read them, uh, there's a, a guy, last name is Rubinson, I can't remember his first name. Uh, he wrote a book on the letters of Antony. He gave a new translation of them, 
and talks about how like these things are remarkably similar to originist gnostic tendencies and uh so at first whenever people first read athanasius's story uh, the life of antony they thought oh he's just making antony into this great you know bigger than life guy who did all these things that we could never you know that we could never do he's playing him up uh it's a hagiography well now people think that he really played down how radical antony was in his thought and how he uh how he lived so gnosticism gnosticism the matrix yeah take the red pill no take the blue pill it's no way better. red pill blue which one is which do you remember red pill was the one that you take to know the truth okay so definitely take the blue pill because life is shitty when you know the truth but no it's not Another important thing that you need to know about uh, Gnosticism, other than the sound of that god being born, (laughs) is Nag Hammadi. Nag Hammadi is an area in Egypt where a, as I said before, a library of texts was found. Um, This is just a whole bunch of books. There were some uh, patristic books found in there. There were some uh, works of Plato think some of Aristotle. Um, there were a bunch of apocryphal gospels, um, such as the Gospel of Truth, um, a bunch of texts that we, upon reading them, noticed these have striking similarities with these other Gnostic texts that we had known of before. And so um, this library was thought to have been part of the library of a Gnostic group. Well, that's actually uh, kind of a big debate. I think it's about settled. Um, there's a growing consensus over who would have owned this library. And it's actually a really important question to answer um, historically. Because these texts were heretical. They had clearly uh, ideas that overruled what the Bible said, uh, completely different ideas of how creation happened. So the groups that came to be known as Orthodox would have, you know, rejected these texts. Um, and they did. Whenever you read Irenaeus, it's the ideas... Irenaeus talks about some of these ideas of how the world came into being and how all these gods came into being. And those were considered heretical. And it's the exact type things that we find in some of the Nag Hammadi texts. Well, it's pretty much generally agreed now that it was monks who owned this library of books. And that's a big deal. Why would monks have all of these books that we now look at as heretical? Why would they be reading these things? Even, you know, Athanasius is famous letter where he gives the first time in history where we have the full list of the 26 books of the New Testament. The first time we have that written out is Athanasius telling people, do not read any apocryphal books, only read these. These are the only ones that are helpful, spiritually speaking. 
um, and he outright rejects using apocryphal literature. So why would these monks have this apocryphal literature? Well, because not everyone agreed with Athanasius. Even Orthodox people, um, we have um, sermons from a guy named Pseudo-Evodius who used apocryphal books in a sermon, and he even says, now you're going to notice that what I just said isn't in the canonical gospels, but, you know, if you just take the wool off of a sheep and make a robe out of it, it doesn't have any color. It's still useful. It's perfect for what it needs to do, but it's okay to add some dye to that cloak and make it colorful. That's what apocryphal gospels do. They give us some color. So not everyone had the same idea that Athanasius had on how we use apocryphal books. They considered them kind of like commentaries. Um, they didn't have verse-by-verse -verse commentaries like we have today. Or that early on, mostly what they had were apocryphal gospels. So the fact that monks had these books doesn't mean they agreed with the theology or philosophy in them. It meant that they read them. Tyler, do you have any books in your library that you disagree with on any theological or philosophical point? I don't think so. I only read Hal Lindsey. <laughs> Exclusively Hal Lindsey. Exclusively. I mean, like, for real, if you go into your pastor's office, if he's a good pastor, he's going to have at least a book that he doesn't agree with on a fundamental level. Um, intellectual leaders should be reading books written by other intellectual leaders, even if they ultimately disagree with their fundamental premises because that just makes better intellectual leaders and the monks wouldn't have been any different, right? Yeah, I mean, I I literally have the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas <laughs> on my library bookshelf <laughs> yeah. downstairs. So if we excavate Tyler's bookshelf, we're going to assign him a Gnostic category in what, 1600 years, 1700 years? Yeah. The point is, there was this idea that these texts had to belong to a group called Gnostic. But since we now see that these texts belonged to... They were circulated among monastic communities. Well, so who were the Gnostics then? If there was no group of Gnostics that owned this text, who was there? Like a community that believed these things? And... So that's really the big question. Historically speaking, that's the big question. There are several different views among scholars as to who the Gnostics were. An older view that is less fashionable now is that Gnostics were a separate religion that were just kind of kind of piggyback, piggybacking off of Judaism and Christianity. Uh, Berger Pearson is one of the main proponents of this view, and he thinks uh, Gnosticism originated more actually within Judaism and followed um, their like Enoch traditions. Uh, Jewish literature followed a lot of um, texts that were based on the life of Enoch, which was that guy in the Old Testament who uh, I think the text says, and he was no more. And so Jewish people thought, oh, God must have done something special with him. So there was a lot of books talking about how God took Enoch up to the heavenly realms and taught him secret things. And so Pearson sees Gnosticism as uh, 
in a way really closely linked linked to that tradition and there are a lot of enochic traditions in egypt so it's kind of perfect that you would have um heavy gnostic influence and heavy jewish enochic traditions in egypt that uh that view of gnosticism like i said is less fashionable now uh many believe that gnostics were a christian sect um some, like we mentioned earlier, believe that it is closer to original Christianity. I don't think that's true, but you think whatever you want. Uh, but they did believe that this group was a specific group of people who called themselves Gnostics, a self, self-identifying Gnostics. And David Brackey is one of the leading scholars today who promotes that view. And then... I I personally believe more along the lines of um, people such as uh, Hugo Lundhaug and Lance Janot and Jeff Smith who say Gnostics didn't exist. There was never a social group who called themselves Gnostics. Rather, what we have are these different groups who have these different cosmologies, these different ways of seeing how everything was created. And there are a lot of similarities between these groups. There are sometimes very distinct differences among these groups. But ultimately, we can't say that there was a group called Gnostic. Nowhere in any Gnostic literature do they call themselves Gnostics, but we do have people that we would consider Orthodox Christians talking about receiving Gnosis. Uh, who are they? Clement. Yeah, Clement actually is one of the only people who calls himself a Gnostic. Yeah, and he is considered one of our, you know, most Orthodox, fa- I mean, our earliest Orthodox fathers. So this is Clement of Alexandria, if anyone's interested, not Clement, the one who wrote first Clement, and yeah. then who second Clement is named after. Yeah. Isn't Clement of Alexandria, didn't he do the... Uh, just that crazy collection of yeah, random crap. The uh, Stramata. Yeah. Uh, That's a convoluted text. That is the convoluted text. A This is a freebie for your edification. Um, for your patristic trivial pursuit games. <laughs> which uh, we should produce that. That'd Ooh, be so funny. We should make that. Uh, if you listen to this and you would consider purchasing that for a joke, uh, mostly... But or for real, it's whatever. We're not going to judge. Uh, feel free to comment on our Facebook page, and we will actually consider making that <laughs> if you make it financially feasible for us. In other words, please give us money. Yeah, give us your money, uh, <clears throat> your hard-earned capital. Um, but Clement of Alexandria wrote this thing called the Stramata, and it's a real theory that one of his students like had the papers collected into a bundle and then like dropped them, and they all got out of place, and like someone just shoved them back together. And that's the ordering. Yeah, that's how convoluted the stromata is. Someone thinks that they were dropped and shuffled back together. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much the case with every Gnostic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but Tyler was saying something real. Tyler? Yeah, so the point being, no one called themselves Gnostics a lot, except for Clement, and a lot of uh, who we would consider Orthodox teachers, uh, church fathers, spoke of receiving knowledge and they spoke of intellectual ascent um i mean even athanasius 
talked about how our ultimate goal is to contemplate, to use our minds to contemplate on the Word of God. But even more compelling, I think, is something that uh, is in Jeff Smith's, uh, it's his revised dissertation called Guilt by Association, Heresy Catalogs in Early Christianity. Uh, He talks about how Gnostic was used as a pejorative term to lump together all of Irenaeus's enemies. Irenaeus is the main one that we look at to, uh, one of the main church fathers we look at to understand how the Orthodox writers responded to Gnosticism. And if you want to know about Gnosticism, really one of the first places you should go is Irenaeus's Against Heresies, book one, chapters one through eight. And they're actually really short chapters. Um, It's really dense. It takes a while to get through just because there are a lot of characters, but it's ultimately like not a whole lot of words to read. So if you want to know about it, check out uh, Irenaeus. But Jeff Smith shows that Irenaeus takes this word Gnostic and he applies it to everyone from Simon Magus to, you know, these Gnostic writers like Valentinus and Basilides and Ptolemy. And that was actually a common rhetorical move. Smith talks about schools of physicians and how there were different schools popping up um, within even the 3rd century BCE. And uh, i got to find it real quick. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There are these different sects coming up uh, among physicians in the ancient world, and they had different ways of different methodologies, different thoughts and theories on, you know, biology and fun stuff like that. And these sects within the world of physicians disagreed on stuff, but their opponents would classify them all under one category so that they could just paint a broad brush and attack all of them. So he says, Jeff Smith says, quote, despite the fact that these new sects disagreed over fundamental matters of doctrine, members of the empiricist school, such as Celsus and Galen, came to refer to the sum total of their opponents from these various schools as the, quote, rationalist school, or the dogmatic school. So they would use these broad terms, um, and by the way, the word school in uh, Greek is heresy. So they referred to all of their enemies as the rationalists. Well, even the people from the empiricist school, you know, the, quote, orthodox school, would have considered themselves rational. But they called their enemies the rationalist school, the logical school. So that's what Jeff Smith says Irenaeus is doing. And I think he proves it pretty definitively that that's what Irenaeus is doing. Um, So in the end, I agree with Smith and others that historically speaking and sociologically speaking, it's entirely unhelpful to talk about Gnostics. There was not a group of Gnostics. What we have is literature, and these literature, these pieces of literature bear similarities. And so let's make this whole convoluted 
frustratingly confusing conversation a little bit more confusing and admit that if we're going to talk about the commonalities between these pieces of literature, the most helpful way we can do it is to use the word Gnostic. Uh, One example that's, or one illustration that's helpful is to think about what is an evangelical? Um, If you think about it, you're probably going to have a hard time coming up with a definition for the word evangelical because it's not a distinct social group. It doesn't have distinct boundaries. There's no evangelical pope who can just say, this is the boundaries of evangelicalism. Um, they There's some similarities between different groups of people. Um, so, like... There's some similarities between the like revivalist type Baptists and the um, really passionate Charismatics and the um, yeah. There's similarities in ideas, in um, emotional ties to things between various schools of people we might call evangelicals but there is no distinct sociological group called evangelicals and the fun thing is that people have attempted to demarcate who evangelicals are i mean david bebbington is a visiting scholar at baylor and there's actually a thing called the bebbington quadrilateral (laughs) (laughs) and it's his uh like the categories that he has like in all the research he's done on evangelicalism he found four distinct qualities and he thinks these identify like if you have these traits then you're evangelical but then there's been pushback on him because you can look in puritanism and see that they have these same four traits so right so it's all murky and confusing which sounds familiar to people who have listened to the podcast this far um because evangelicalism like gnosticism is confusing you can't really draw boundaries but in order to have like intelligent intelligible conversations we have to have a word for this set of tendencies and we use the word gnostic uh on evangelicalism my grandma from new uh new jersey uh, is presbyterian and to her the word evangelical means you use guitars in your service um like the word evangelical to other people might mean uh, penal substitutionary atonement and inerrancy of the Bible. Um, to other groups of people, it might mean not so much anymore, but like reading the relevant blogs and it's all up in the air. Yeah, Just like Gnosticism is sort of up in the air, but we all kind of know what we are talking about when we say the word evangelical. And we kind of know what we're talking about when we say the word Gnostic. Okay, so so we gave the traditional idea of Gnosticism. Let's deconstruct that a little bit, but also in what helpful way can we talk about the tendencies of Gnosticism? So if we can just bracket out and put that caveat that when we say Gnosticism at this point, we're talking about general tendencies of thought that put you in the spectrum of Gnosticism. So what are those tendencies, would you say? I mean, is the tradition helpful? Does it, do these tendencies line up with what the tradition says? I mean, I tend to think so on this particular, like, it seems to me that, uh, belief that the physical created world is not ideal, either it's evil or mistaken. That's a legitimate tendency and that comes out of Irenaeus, right? 
Uh, yeah, so this may be actually a good point to talk a little bit about the cosmology. Yeah, yeah, Tyler, you should explain that. Gnosticism, or at least, so in, uh, as I said, Irenaeus' book one, chapters one through eight, are helpful, is a helpful place to start uh, looking at what Gnostics thought about how the world is created. Um, and it's wacky stuff. So it's amazing. It's really fun. Um, so there's this original, good, perfect being, which is called Buthos. And Buthos means in Greek, like, depth. So there's this unknowable, transcendent being that we could call the Father. And the Father begets another female counterpart and then has babies with that female counterpart and then weird part number one yeah weird part number one children with your own emanation so (laughs) so then they start having babies and then from then on you get these beings having babies in pairs a male and a female and then those will make other babies and all of these gods these beings are called eons which in Greek means, like, age. So, um, down the line we go, and at the beginning here, the first kind of bookend of this, there is 30 eons. And then, at this point, one of the lower form eons, whose name is Sophia, which you might know means uh, wisdom in, in Greek, Sophia really wants to get back to the father, the Buthos. She wants to know uh, her her origin. She wants to know the father completely and perfectly. And so she tries to skip all of these other eons. She jumps in line. They're all in line to, to really get back in to know their origin. She cuts in line, but she's not ready for it. And it drives her insane. Like, kind of actually drives her insane. And she begins grieving and mourning and then she kind of gives up on knowing the father because she says it's just not possible. So then she tries to create her own emanation. She she produces from herself. But up until this point, it has been a male and female pair that has created the next eon. And that's because they thought the male creates the form, contributes the form, and then the female contributes the substance, and that's how you get the, the new eon. Well, she doesn't get the form, she just has the substance, so she just splurts out the substance. <laughs> <laughs> and that substance was formed out of her grief, out of her uh, longing, and out of her passion. That was one of the central ideas, is this passion that drove her to do things that she shouldn't have done. Um, So then there becomes this need to restore Sophia, the restoration of Sophia. And so then this new god is formed called Horos, and Horos takes that gunk that Sophia splurted out and casts it out of the Pleroma. The Pleroma is, Pleroma is just Greek for fullness, it's kind of like the heavenly realm. Even Paul talks about Pleroma. There's more biblical evidence for Gnosticism being true. Uh, in Colossians, it's 
in Christ the pleroma of the divine dwells. Gnostics yeah. liked that passage. Yeah. So Horos takes that gunk and tosses it out of the pleroma, and Sophia is then restored. She's put back where she needs to be, and everything's great. Well, then, um, Buthos doesn't want these other eons to go through that pain again. They don't want anyone to experience what Sophia had to experience. So then that uh, the first eon, the original one, creates... Uh, actually, I think it's one of his descendants who makes um, uh, Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the, the job of Christ and the Holy Spirit is to help these eons know their place. To help them to stay in the Pleroma and to be what they're meant to be. Well, Christ sees that uh, stuff, the substance that Sophia made floating outside of the Pleroma. So he exits the Pleroma and goes to that stuff and gives it some form and gives it some intelligence. But not as much intelligence as it needs to get back to the Father. And then Christ is like, alright, I did my job. He jets out. Well, somehow, another god, another... It's not god, an official... it's so convoluted. It is, it's great. Another being is formed out there. I don't think it's an official eon, but a being called Akamoth, which might be a mis mispronunciation of the Hebrew word Chokmah, which means wisdom. Akamoth is formed out there from this stuff, and she makes the Demiurge. And this is where it really gets important. The Demiurge is the creator that we know from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Demiurge just means creator in Greek. So then Akamoth and the Demiurge try to recreate the Pleroma out of this stuff. They're trying to make everything in the image of the Pleroma. So Akamoth actually made the Demiurge in the image of Christ. Because um, she wanted to remake all this stuff. Well, then Akamoth tries to play the role of the hidden father from the Pleroma, so she hides herself from the Demiurge, and so then the Demiurge is ignorant of her, ignorant of his direct source, ignorant of the whole Pleroma and everything, and so when he creates everything, he thinks that he did it by himself, and he's just ignorant. He didn't know the truth, but Akamoth had put inside of the Demiurge the spirit, the spirit that she had from the original Pleroma. So some of this divinity is still inside of the Demiurge. And when the Demiurge breathes breath into the life of humans, he also unknowingly, unwittingly gives them the spirit, which ultimately, as it grows in us and as we tap into it and as we receive the knowledge, we can be returned back into the ultimate father, the Buthos. So, as convoluted and wacky as that sounds, this is really important to kind of the worldview of the people we call Gnostic. This is a theodicy. It's more than just a wacky creation story. There, there are extremely important ramifications to this. Um, if the cre they're, they're trying to understand why the world is the way it is. Why do we have evil? Why do we have suffering and pain? And it's because of mistakes that 
Sophia made. It's because of the pain that they experienced. And now this physical matter, because it was made out of pain, experiences pain. And so we need to escape this pain. And escape this world. Yeah. And the way uh, to like full life is by escaping the world and physicality and being reunited to who we truly are which is non-physical, supernatural, spiritual beings. And, like we said, there are a bunch of different uh, perspectives on how everything was made. Uh, what I just described was what Irenaeus said was Valentinus's teaching. This is actually probably the best, like, closer to what we would know as orthodoxy. Um... And this, this isn't so far from the kind of things that Origen said. Yeah. Uh, do you want to expound on Origen's cosmology? Um, so Origen's, uh, at least what Origen thought about the world, about the cosmos itself, is that, uh, so God creates the world, the world is good. He's different from the Gnostics in that way. Um, but for Origen, also, the point of existence is to escape the world and uh, society and physical fleshness and ultimately when we die if we were good pious christians we will be brought back up into the divine and reabsorbed into the divine a lot like sophia wanted to be yeah not reabsorbed but contemplate the divine um and so origin is one of the many gnostic tendencies people and that's actually why uh not himself, but a lot of his teachings were condemned as heresy in the 6th, 7th century, something like that. Yeah, so that that actually ties back to what I was talking about with Nag Hammadi and this being part of monastic orders uh, library. Um, with the death of a monk named um, Evagrius, the Originist controversy really exploded, and the thought is that these Gnostic tendencies are really stemming in, a, in large part from originist tendencies. So the thought is, whenever there really began to be hardcore push against originist tendencies, someone took the Nag Hammadi texts and hid them. Hmm. Uh, they were hidden in, um, in like, pots and jars. They were protected and preserved. So whoever hid them seems to have wanted to preserve them. And so we're, kind of the question is, did they hide them because of anti-originist surge in the atmosphere so actually a really sad story about that is that the guy who found the Nag Hammadi texts was um i mean he was just a villager from the area who happened upon them and he brought them home and his mom took some of them and as she was cooking out in the backyard she threw some of the texts into no. the fire to cook their meal so we have lost some of these Nagamati texts because someone wanted to cook their dinner. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. It's really sad. That's really brutal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so other tendencies. Um, what about the dualism? We touched on it. Um, so dualism is in like human dualism? Like dualism of humans or like dualism of the good and bad gods? Well, I think those are both important to... It's true. Uh, Sparknotes' version of Gnosticism's dualism is that uh, physical is bad and spiritual is good. And so the creator of the physical world is also bad. 
either in the sense that he was stupid and made this stupid world because the world is stupid, or he was evil and wanted to do a bad thing and rebel against God. Um, oh, yeah, that was the Sethians. Oh, was it? There is a group of Sethian Gnostics. Uh, we, we call them Sethian Gnostics because they, um, they believe that we should oppose the Demiurge because the Demiurge is evil. And actually they saw this, the serpent in the Garden of Eden as the protagonist. The serpent is bringing us our knowledge. Um, and then kind of more proof that they would use is um, when the Israelites are in the wilderness and they hold up the snake on the staff. The snake is the rescuer, and Jesus, like that snake, is lifted up on the oh, cross. Man, that's beautiful. Um, I don't not beautiful in the sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that's just a really well played. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know all of the connections to Seth. Um, Seth, as you may know, is the son of Adam and Eve that they had after uh, Cain killed Abel. Um, I I haven't read enough into the Sethian side of things, so we'll do some more specific episodes later on these different sects but uh on the serpent also a big proponent of that the serpent is the giver of knowledge and life and stuff alistair crowley uh author of the book of the law founder of the religion thelema and the main character in an ozzy osbourne song mr crowley uh he's not so much known anymore but in the like 60s 70s counterculture movement alistair crowley was the man um he created a religion yeah so his religion was called thelema uh, which is greek for will and basically alistair crowley is the like forefather of uh the sort of new age spiritualism like you are great you are a star you are bigger than your body in john mayer's words and uh you are so divine and it's a restriction of your super divine nature to have any, you know, laws or moral commands put on you. And the serpent is the one who frees us from the arbitrary God's rules and his detesting of life. And the only sin is to sin against life itself by not embracing it. So, I mean, maybe that's a good place to segue into, like, contemporary tendencies toward Gnosticism. I like it. Um... So before we recorded this, Gerhard and I were talking through kind of our own thoughts on how, what is a, an appropriate way to discuss these ancient heresies and apply them to the things that we have going on today. I mean, it's the same conversation we basically had with our last episode on Marcion, where Gerhard said, yeah, we can call these people Marcionites. And I said, well, I'm not so sure about that. So That's sort of how we still feel. Yeah. With this Gnostic issue, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I still think... I, I recognize the helpfulness of using analogies and drawing parallels between general things, as long as, in the back of our minds, we know the nuances and we can say, like, it's generally a tendency of Gnosticism to think dualistically but don't just think because you think that we will escape our bodies and our resurrection is just spiritual that's a like that's a general thought that people have today um is that we will escape our bodies and the resurrection isn't physical it's spiritual like 
that's a Gnostic tendency. That's not Gnosticism. I don't think we can... I don't know that it's helpful to call people Gnostic because they have this one particular idea that sounds like something an ancient Gnostic would have said. Right, yeah. So... I mean, that's my caveat that I want. I want to cav- put a caveat on everything. So, and stacks on stacks of caveats. It just feels to me like this is two truths and no lie. I mean, like yes and no. Um, Gnosticism, not Gnosticism. Like a person today isn't a Gnostic just because they don't believe in the physical resurrection, but they are having a Gnostic tendency and not believing in the physical resurrection because they're not ultimately affirming that God is the creator of all the good world. Um, So, yeah, hear that caveat. And I think maybe what disturbs me about the way that that's used, like, I can totally get on board with the way you use it, but the way some, like, gatekeeper type yeah. Um, you know, these popular Christian bloggers who think, you know, anyone who questions the Old Testament is a Marcionite and they yeah. use that and they are using it in a technical sense. They are saying you are an actual heretic and you are going to hell because you are a Marcionite. Right. And so I think that's why I think that it its tendency like using these labels irresponsibly is done too often and so that's why i want to be like so careful with using the categories yeah like that. and like like tyler was saying earlier uh, a lot of ancient writers had ancient orthodox writers had a lot of gnostic tendencies and yeah. a tendency isn't necessarily a bad thing um yeah wh- how we label something shouldn't determine whether it's right or wrong in this case it's wrong but how we label it isn't how <laughs> we define that so let's talk about why it's wrong. I mean, so the tendency in contemporary culture, and this is actually something that N.T. Wright has made a really central part of his like, his life's work. He's spent a lot of time talking about physical resurrection, and he talks about Gnosticism a lot and uses it as a parallel to people who sing songs like I'll Fly Away, you know, like a bird from these prison bars I've flown. Like, people see death as an attempt to escape this world. Yeah. Um, Whenever you're at a funeral, how many people say, you know, she's in a better place? Like, they are not in their physical body, therefore they are better. Yeah. So, talk about why that is problematic. Uh, Well, there's another book coming out next (laughs) month (laughs) called Meaning Without Meaning, where I talk about this issue a lot. Uh, Be looking for that presumably another podcast will come out before then so i'll give an actual promo but i just think that if we say like salvation is escaping this world then what we're ultimately saying is what you like there is something that matters and this world is not it um like there is activity that you could be doing that's important and meaningful and viable and uh, working in your job or raising your kids or eating a meal, like those aren't it. All that matters is what gets you to the spiritual place. Um, whereas authentic traditional Christianity says God is the creator of the world, which means the world, is, like the world as it is now is basically what God wants. Um, 
with some moral changes, of course. But this world is what God wanted all along. Humans in human bodies, with human minds and human hands and human feet, is the humanity that God wanted. And therefore, um, it makes no sense to say that God would rescue us from the humanity that God wanted all along. Um, so, salvation is a restoration of this life, this world now. It's not an escape from your career and your family and kayaking. It's um, a world where your career and your family and your kayaking fit inside of a broader picture where there's no more injustice or slavery or sex trafficking or capitalism cats yeah <laughs> uh yeah it's salvation isn't about escaping this world into a better world it's about this world itself becoming better and by that we don't mean this world with work gone away with families done away with with kayaking done away with it's this actual world like I feel like if I say it in just the words that I mean, <laughs> it doesn't come out with the the strength that I mean it. Yeah. But like, authentic like, Christianity is not Gnosticism. It's not escape. Yeah. It's fulfillment. Yeah. Like kayaking for the sake of kayaking is itself part of what it means to be part of God's world. Yeah. And not kayaking for the sake of like... Uh, using kayaking as an image of why god is so awesome and actually it's really just about your spiritual experience no it's because it's fun and that's fine that's yeah. what god wanted he doesn't want pious people contemplating the divine all the time like athanasius was wrong i think about that mm. it's not about turning every uh bit of your interest to god it's about being interested in the world that god made and you as a part of it that was really ranty, but I don't take it back, and I don't apologize. <laughs> I'm just saying that as a fact. That was perfect. So why why is Jesus made actually human if human life doesn't matter? Um, why is the incarnation central if creation in the first place doesn't matter? Um, why? So it's interesting. It's not necessarily, it doesn't prove anything, but it's interesting that the four canonical gospels um, are stories about Jesus's actual physical life. And then the gospel of Thomas is uh, weird esoteric sayings that invite you into a secret knowledge. That's not necessarily, I don't want to say push that too far. I was pushing it too far earlier and Tyler said, you shouldn't push it so far. And I said, yeah, you're right. But I mean, it's still interesting that the canonical gospels have Jesus uh having an actual human life um well let, so let me put caveats around that yeah i mean yeah. so in the gospel of mark which does give us you know parts of jesus's life um it also gives us a jesus who has secret knowledge yeah that he is like jesus constantly pulls the disciples away from the rest of the crowds to give them knowledge that he's not giving everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, I mean, in the gospel of Mark, the secret of Jesus is a central theme. Um, and so I'm not saying I'm a Gnostic. I'm just saying that like, there is an intellectual aspect of Christianity. Yeah, definitely. The intellectual. And this is maybe the, I don't know what heresy I would attach this to, but like 
the antithesis of Gnosticism in Christianity today, I think, is problematic. Hmm. Um, How's that? Explain. The, the overwhelming, like, emotional, passionate... I mean, the Gnostics were about, like, being disimpassioned, um, stoic, receiving the knowledge that you need, um, avoiding your passions, because this world was created because Sophia had passions that she shouldn't have had. Um, but I think that Christianity today, on both the progressive and the conservative sides, are too obsessed with our passions. I mean, it's all about, um, you know, when you, for for an evangelical, whatever that is, <laughs> uh, for an evangelical that when you, you know, walk the aisle, you need to have your heart strangely warmed as, was that Edwards? Wesley. Or Wesley. Um, you need to come sobbing and slobbering and snotting everywhere because it's just so emotional. Um, and then on the, you know, more progressive mainline side, it's about, you know, a little bit more classically liberal about like getting in tune with the divinity inside of you and what you feel right is right. It's your, it's, it's kind of a, an, an ill-informed postmodernism yeah of just kind of like my truth and my feeling i have the right to my own moral compass i have the right to my own assent to the doctrines that i think are right it doesn't matter what paul said it doesn't matter what jesus said as a human it doesn't matter what bible says um i feel this way and i think both sides have tendencies to do that um and i think we need to do a better job of seeing that uh, that there is an aspect of intellectual assent, doctrinal assent to Christianity. Yeah, yeah, Do- doctrinal assent that leads to lives lived in the kingdom of God. Yes. So probably the it's to me the critical my truth is that <laughs> <laughs> uh, the critical <laughs> the critical error of Gnosticism dealing with truth is that it's not truth that leads to life lived in the kingdom of god like it's not in that both parts of that are essential life lived in a kingdom of god way Mm. um so that it seems to me that the point of all divine revelation is to change people's lives and to change the world and to make it more um thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven uh gnosticism uses knowledge to escape from the world and the kingdom coming in the world but they were right to say that knowledge has a part to play in that mm-hmm. yeah but they're they're wrong in the orientation of the knowledge but yeah. right that knowledge was a part of it yeah and and i imagine that they thought that they were you know that their intellectual ascent was leading to kingdom of god stuff um we would obviously say that we're wrong Right. They were absolutely wrong. Um, but all that to say, we don't we don't even have to go to the to the Gnostics to see intellectual, you know, doctrinal importance. I mean, we can go to our Bibles uh, and patristic sources to see the importance of this stuff Yeah, for our ethics. Again, like we believe things because it's going to make this world the world that God wants. Uh and I really don't want to do this all the time, but that's the main, one of the main theses 
of the book that's coming out on October 25th is that divine revelation exists for the purpose of ethics. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. And I mean, your the book that you just published recently, Magic and Technology. I mean, you talk Genesis one through eleven. I mean, you have a cosmological argument there. So I mean, you're not. I'm the one asking you to promote your book here. So uh, buy my book. What? Uh, I mean, how does knowledge play into your idea of humanity and creation and God's will for? what this world should look like. I mean, the Gnostics are all about, we have to get the secret knowledge. The goal is to get more knowledge. You think something else. It seems to me that like knowledge exists and it's good. And even theology and even philosophy are good and exist for a purpose. And that purpose is changing lives. Um, Marx of all people said the point of philosophy is not to describe the world, but to change it. The point of philosophy theology is to lead people to live better more christian lives um i think knowledge so a perfect example i think is the exodus revelation um moses is just wandering out in the desert uh feeding sheep and he sees the burning bush and oh man it's not burning or it's burning but it's not being burned up and God gives Moses some theology. He gives Moses, he, God gives Moses some theology. Um, God doesn't have a penis. <gasps> what? what? <laughs> no. Uh, there is some theology there. He says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, God gives Moses this fundamental notion of who God is and what God has done through history. But it, that's not why God appears to Moses. God doesn't appear to Moses to say, hey, you should think this way about me. God appears to Moses and tells Moses how Moses should think about God in order to say, now go talk to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. Um, It's that, so Paul preaches Christ, not so people have ideas about the divine, but so that people can become formed in the way of Christ. Um, Philippians 2 is another great example he gives the most, one of the most profound doctrinal uh, teachings in the New Testament and explicitly says, now you should also think and act this way. Um, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, that being in the form of God, he lowered himself. Um, theology, very basic theology is given to us in order to teach us how to live in God's world. That's the point of knowledge is getting just enough knowledge to orient ourselves in the world and then actually doing it. So knowledge is the, what do they, they say? There's that, um, like philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, but you're saying, uh, theology is the handmaiden of ethics. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that about wraps up all of, uh, our thoughts on, introductory matters of Gnosticism and contemporary issues surrounding Gnosticism. So, uh, first off, don't be a Gnostic. Live in the world um, as a part of it, because that's what ultimately brings the kingdom of God here. Hmm. And uh, go kayaking. Go kayaking. 
Stop listening to podcasts. Don't listen to podcasts while you're kayaking. Not not only because it's dangerous, but because you need to be in your kayak and looking at the sky and looking at the creation around you and not spending all of your time as a little intellectual bubble. Yeah. But thanks for listening to our podcast. and Keep listening to it. Not while kayaking. Yeah. So, farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. <laughs>